0: Hi everybody, welcome to the first episode of Spire Podcast. My name is Tyrese B and we got a great episode for you guys today. Today we have a special guest, a two-time Golden Glove winner, veteran journalist with her own book called Finding Chance. Welcome, Alicia Doyle. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great, Tyrese. How are
0: you doing today? I'm doing pretty good myself. I can't complain. How is um your family doing, everybody doing with the um COVID situation going on?
1: Um, we're faring, we're doing okay. You know, people are stressed out, but we're trying to remain positive. We're staying very safe. Nobody is sick. So we're
0: very grateful for that. How about you and your family? Oh, oh we're doing great on our end. So far, nobody has gotten sick. So that's a blessing. Great. So um, I wanted to start off the interview with you from the beginning. Uh, can you tell the listeners where you were born and raised?
1: Yes, I was born and raised in Southern California. Uh, in 1970, um, but then we moved um, after the earthquake in 71. So I really grew up in Colorado, in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, which was a pretty small town back, back in the day. Came back to California at age 16, and I've been here ever
0: since. So let me ask you a question. So you moved from Colorado to California, am I correct? Yes. All right, so how was that? When did you move, actually?
1: i was 16 years old so i was just entering my sophomore year in high school so i spent oh, okay. my freshman year um, back in colorado my mom had remarried at that point and wanted to move to california so that's when we came
0: across how was that like how was that um that whole time for you was it hard was it easy transition
1: it was um, a very difficult transition that was hard I, I think because of the age that i was being a teenager you know six going on 16 um I had us you know of course established a group of friends uh, back in colorado and and felt very comfortable there so yeah when i was pulled away um it meant um separating myself and my friends and my father my father is there as well my friends are divorced so it was it was a challenging transition i must say but as soon as i got to california I felt more comfortable. Um, it's a bigger melting pot of, of nationalities. Back in Colorado, I was the only Asian in my school, for instance. Um, so it was nice coming to California and seeing um, just uh, an ethnic mix of all different nationalities. In my school. So that was the, the nicest change that I saw. On me.
0: Now, you say you went through a lot of um, trials and tribulations throughout your childhood. So let me ask you uh, do you believe that any of those things or those events that happened made you the person who you are today?
1: Absolutely. And that's a beautiful question because when when I was going through those struggles and challenges, and some of them I did not think I was going to survive, I remember being you know very depressed about those things. But um, as I got older and stronger, because of those hard things I went through, I realized that, that those difficult things and those challenges and those things I thought would break me did, not, did end up making me stronger and made me the person I am today. Absolutely.
0: Great. So now let's go into your journalism. So in your book, you describe your journey as a journalist. What inspired you to become a journalist in the first place?
1: I've always loved writing ever since I was a child. I never thought I would get into newspaper reporting, Uh, but I was going to Pierce College trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And this is a community college in Southern California. I needed to take an elective at the time. And one of the electives was college newspaper. So I went to the meeting and the editor-in-chief at the time was a student at the college. Uh, she spoke about the power of the press and that the, path, the press had the power to change lives and, and have a positive influence on society. Um, the press had the ability to bring justice to the world. And I just thought that it was a very powerful location, a way for me to make a difference. And so I, my journalism career, newspaper writing, started at First College Newspaper. And um, at that point, I had fallen in love with newspaper recordings, so that's when I
0: decided I wanted to be a newspaper journalist. So now let's get into your first big break into the journalism industry. I know you worked in college, as you said, for the college newspaper, but what was your like, first big break in journalism?
1: I did have a break. I, w- I was very lucky and very blessed. I had always wanted to work for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, this is when I was a, a late teenager, just because at the time, the LA Times was the big, one of the biggest newspapers around. So I had started applying to the, the Times, I think I was 19 or 18 years old. I started applying to them and I had very mediocre, mediocre clips, uh, stories I had written for the Pierce College newspaper. Um, but I started applying and sending in my application and my, my clips once a month for two years straight, I was sending the LA Times my stuff. And then finally, two years later, a woman from the LA Times, an editor named Ann Branoff, um, she's still around, she called me in for an interview. And uh, once I got my foot in the door, I realized that's what I wanted to do. But during the meeting, she did ask me, she did tell me the nature of the job, what it meant, what my duties would be. I was hired as a stringer, which is somebody who's not on staff, but um, they pick up all the slack that the, the staff reporters don't want to pick up. So at the end of our meeting, Anne asked me if I had any questions for her. And I said, yes, I'm wondering what took you so long to bring me in for an interview because I had been sending my stuff in for two years straight, once a month for two years straight. And she said, she said, frankly, we wanted to see who this Alicia Doyle was who was sending in her resume clips once a month for two years straight. So that's, that's how I got my break, but it was because this woman believed in me. And and it and I really do credit her largely for launching my journalism career because after the LA twins I was able to work for other Metropolitan newspapers thanks to that experience.
0: Okay. Well let's go into all the stories that you've written. You've written a lot of stories, you work for a lot of places, San Diego, Ventura Star. Out of all the articles you have written so far, what is your favorite article and why?
1: Oh my goodness. That is a huge question. I love the question I mean, it's it's asked of me a lot. I I have many favorites um, because I specialize in good news, which are stories about people and efforts that have a positive impact on the world in any capacity. Um, One that particularly stands out is a man named Ishmael Tesparati, uh, who I wrote about because he was a, a, a very successful director, producer, writer, and then he came down with Lou Gehrig's disease in his 50s and he lost all ability to use any muscle in his entire body. His brain is perfectly fine, but he can't move anything. He can't speak. The only thing he could do is blink with one eye. So him being a writer, he learned how, a, a, like a, an alphabet system where he literally wrote a book one blink at a time, letter by letter, sentence by sentence, one blink at a time. And the name of his book is One Blink at a Time. So that's a gentleman who really stands out to me, and his wife, who stood by his side the entire time. And he's since written two books that way, and right now he's trying to find computer technology where all he has to do is look at the letters rather than having to go through an alphabet chart, but he's looking into that technology now. So he really stands out because he's incredibly inspirational and faces the challenges that I don't think a lot of people would have survived.
0: Oh, that's an interesting story. It's actually a crazy story, because you see um, a lot of these um, football players that have brain damage now that are diagnosed with ALS and then um, they use the same thing or a certain type of technology where they use their eyes to talk or like a keyboard to use their eyes to talk. So that's pretty, that's pretty clean. Cool. that's pretty cool. So in your book, you um, mentioned that you are a freelance journalist now, right? What is the difference between being a freelance journalist and working for an organization or a business? Oh, that's a great question
1: um so as working when i was working on staff at a newspaper i was hired by that newspaper and every story i wrote you know was owned by the newspaper i got paid a salary by by every newspaper i wrote for when i was working for those newspaper organizations when i went freelance that gave me um, it opened up my my world of opportunity so that i could write for numerous publications and i wasn't just tied to one so let's say i wrote a story for the la times once i wrote it for them they would own it I wouldn't be able to, to sell it in other, to, at other um, newspaper publications. But as a freelancer now, I can write about a topic, let's say one magazine buys it, and then like say a newspaper wants to buy it as well, I can rewrite the whole story for another publication and that would be okay. So it just really gave me an opportunity to write for different publications. Um, so that's how freelancing is different.
0: So do you enjoy freelancing more then?
1: I do. It, I mean, it's it's working for yourself. Um, so I'm considered an independent contractor. So there was a big learning curve in terms of that because when you work for yourself, and I largely work from home, um, just having the discipline to work every day, which which wasn't that difficult for me. For me, I had a, a very easy transition. I was I'm wired for it very well. So I do enjoy it more, and it almost seems like I'm more productive being freelancer because it it feels like there's there's a bit more pressure because um, everything I'm generating myself, I'm not working for a newspaper where they're giving me assignments and let's say a day I'm slow, I'm still gonna get paid the same amount of money. As a freelancer, you know, I have to know exactly how much I need to make per day, per week, per month, to, to stay afloat and do well. But I'm wired for it, um, so I think that people that are wired for freelance do tend to do very well
0: okay so let me ask you this question as a future journalist myself you know i'm trying to learn new things every day to how to become a better journalist and for the listeners that are going to be listening to this podcast soon what can you tell future journalists what can they do to become a great journalist in this field oh well
1: first of all i encourage you know especially young people like yourself um i thank goodness that you and i have read your stuff it's, it's fantastic But to, yes, I think that if you have a compassionate heart and you're intuitive and and you care about, you know, the subject you're writing about and and you understand um, the incredible responsibility of being a journalist, then that's a good fit. Um, And also understanding that it's a very serious vocation. I take my job very seriously, understanding that once you write something and once it's published, it lives forever. And that's a big responsibility. But that said, once you write something, I mean, it can have an impact and that, and it will live forever. I mean, our words and the things we write, the things you write, Tyrese, those things are going to appear and they're going to be in history books long after they're gone. So I think that writers and journalists are just a very special breed of, of human being. Um, the ones that I have been lucky enough to meet, you included, are, are ones that just they have a, a, a compassionate heart. Um, they're curious individuals, they care about the subjects they write, and I also feel that they that they do, on some level, want to make an impact on society because that's what journalists do, you know, and the flip side of that is if a journalist writes something that's inaccurate or that could possibly harm another person, you know, I take that very seriously too, um, understanding that I don't want to put anything out there that might be um, misinterpreted um, as not the truth, so believe if you take your job seriously, care about people, you, you know, your byline is attached to it, um, and you think if you take all those factors into consideration, you do very well as a journalist, and I encourage any young person out there who wants another girl to do
0: it. So, based off that answer, you were talking about um, powerful stories, you know, compelling stories. I want to um, bring up a compelling story of yours, um, Kid Glove's story. Um, you had mentioned it in your book. Um, I want to know, how did that story come about, and how did that lead you into going
1: into boxing? That's a, a great question, because that assignment fell into my lap very serendipitously. And I do believe I was meant to go on this assignment, um, that, that I was supposed to find boxing, or that boxing was supposed to find me. Uh, I was alone in the newsroom one night. I was the only one there. So the phone rang, and the receptionist was gone for the day, so I answered it. And it was a community activist. She knew who I was. And she told me about a boxing gym in CD Valley, California that had been destroyed by El Nino rains and flooding back in the 1990s. And as soon as she said boxing, I I turned off, I I told her I would give it to a sports reporter. And she said, no, you're not understanding what this assignment is. She said, these kids, these at-risk kids that went to this boxing gym have nowhere to go. And this was the only gym in town that served these at-risk youths, you know, teenagers, you know, these were a lot of them were in gangs, a lot of them came from work at homes. They didn't have um, any mentors or role models around them to steer them on the right path. And that, and they, these were the kids that would go to this gym. Well, now they had nowhere to go. So that pulled in my heart a bit, and I thought, okay, I'll do this story. I'll I'll meet this uh, the guy, the owner of the gym, and we'll see what we can see. And, and soon after I met him, he was, one, and his name is Robert Ortiz, he's the owner of The Big Loves Box. He's one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. And then I delved in a little bit deeper uh, because I wanted to know what it was about this, this incredibly dangerous sport that had such a positive impact on these kids. So I stuck with the process. He reopened in another spot in town. I ended up interviewing his um, the children, the teenagers there and their parents and their caregivers. Just to understand what the sport did for their um, their their physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Uh, so that's what made me fall in love with boxing. Was really through these stories of salvation um, from all these teenagers and these children. And um, and the sooner I, the longer I went on with the sport, boxing eventually became my
0: salvation. So let's talk about your um, journey into starting. Become a boxer how was the training uh, well yes the
1: boxing training just the training alone is is one of the hardest things i've ever done in my life physically um but what got me into the gym that day um to actually take an aerobic boxing class which is no contact boxing you're standing at a heavy bag you're wearing gloves um the owner of the gym had long asked me to go and take an aerobic boxing class and i never took him up on it But what got me into the gym that day was the day prior. I had a a highly volatile breakup with a boyfriend um, who punched me more than once in the face. Um, So it became, it turned violent. Uh, Needless to say, I was very upset about this happening. I was embarrassed, I was ashamed, and I was really angry. So I showed up at the gym the very next day, the boxing gym, because I was so mad. All I wanted to do was hit something as hard as I could. so I showed up for the aerobic boxing class, I took the class, and I hit a heavy bag for an hour, and afterwards, all that anger, all that rage, all the angst and anxiety I was feeling, for that moment, I felt better. So I thought, okay, there's something to this, there's some reason this workout is calming me down. So I was I was going in the next day, the next day, the next day, that's, that's how I started, and before I knew it, I was taking three aerobic boxing classes in a row, five days a week. So that was my introduction. The boxing and the actual competing, that didn't start
0: until later. All right. So let's go into you actually competing. Who got you into competing? Who convinced you and decided to start boxing professionally?
1: Oh, well, that happened because... Um, when I was at the Kickbox Boxing and I was training, the aerobic boxing class was not enough for me. I wanted to learn more like actual boxing skills, so I started studying the fighters, the amateur and professional boxers, and just watching their moves, watching their training regimens, and I started mimicking them and doing the same thing they were doing. And I did this all on my own on the sidelines, but I was so intense when I trained. And being the only female at the time in there training like that, uh, a man named Stan, Ford, and he's known in the boxing world as Coach. He came into Kid Gloves because coaches from boxing gyms, they visit other boxing gyms looking for talent. So he noticed me right away being the only woman and training as hard as I could. Um, and he approached me and asked if I had ever considered tra- uh, competing. And I said I didn't, I had never considered it. He said women's boxing was huge back then. There were only a few hundred women in America doing it at the time. And he thought that I'd be good at it. So he's the one who put the seed in my head. And it's because of him that I started to compete.
0: Hey, cool. All right. Can you explain to the um, to the listeners how did your first fight go? Now, I've read the book, so I know how it went. So, could you explain to them how it went?
1: Oh, sure. And I don't want to give away too many spoilers. Uh, you know, I do want to say that the book. I remember every fight like it was yesterday. So, I retired from boxing in 2000. Um, right. So that tells you how long it's been. But I still remember every fight like it was yesterday. So, um, my first this initiation. initiation it was not an official boxing match. It was a, called an, an exhibition match. I got I got beat up pretty bad in that fight, um, and it was rough. And I almost uh, quit after that fight. Um, you know, getting beaten up in front of a whole crowd of people. Uh, but I survived that fight. It was a very difficult fight. I didn't think I would survive. Um, and it was, it was really after that that I thought, okay, you know, maybe there's something to this. Uh, but I remember being quite terrified going into that fight and, and every, you know, the, that fight is outlined in the book, the thought process, like moment to moment, you know, the conversations with my corner man in those 30 second rest in the corner, you know, all of that's outlined in there and was going through my mind, but um, I remember being quite terrified and, and that never changed. I mean, I ended up competing um officially after that um, and i was terrified before every single fight but that came down to more manage being managing my emotions and my feelings which was an all-encompassing part of competing.
0: good so although your first fight ended in a loss you did have a very decent career you also were a two-time golden glove winner as well explain how it was to win those awards during your fighting career
1: Winning my first Golden Gloves championship, and, and that was the first fight I won. It, it's it's very hard to articulate um, just how good that feels. Uh, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of elation. There's a lot. There's a huge adrenaline rush, of course, involved. Um, yes, and then and then winning the the Golden Gloves championship title. I mean, it, it was a wonderful feeling. Like, I remember feeling like I was on top of the world. Uh, But it was fleeting, you know, that that high that I had, that natural high I had, it didn't last long because I knew it was just a matter of time before I have to step in there and fight again. So (laughs) I tried to hold on to that feeling of happiness as long as I could, but that's like, okay, now I got to get back to the the gym to train because I'm going into another fight. So then my mindset would would go into the the next fight. But yes, winning in a boxing match, there's nothing like it in the world. There's nothing that made me feel more comfortable.
0: So you won those golden gloves on the amateur circuit, right?
1: Correct, yes. All
0: right. So, throughout your career you were in the amateur circuit, then you decided to go pro, and I believe you did fight one pro fight, and yes. I think that fight was nominated for one of the best fights of the year, or one award for one of the best fights of the year? It
1: did, yes, it was named the California Female Fight of the Year.
0: I know you don't want to give too much away because of most of us see in your book, but can you describe how it was to fight in your first pro fight, how was it?
1: Uh, and I love that question because um, there was no way that any amount of training or even sparring could have prepared me for the hurt factor involved in a professional fight. Um, There's a big difference between amateurs and professionals in terms of boxing. With amateurs, we're wearing safety headgear, we're wearing 12 to 14 ounce boxing gloves, which are huge gloves. Uh, But in pros, there's no headgear and you're wearing an 8 ounce glove. So it feels like you're being punched with a bare fist. And even though I had sparred with men and boys for months prior to my pro fight, they, they, they just could not prepare me for the hurt factor involved. So I remember being terrified going into my pro fight. I'm being very excited, but of course scared. And I was fighting a woman named Lisa Valencia who was undefeated and she's an incredible warrior. And I and I had to go, we were, we were scheduled to go to four two minute rounds. And I remember the first punch. I remember how that felt. I, could, I can recall that feeling right now. And I've never felt that level of pain in my life. I can't finish, I'm not gonna be able to finish and that we were only in five seconds into the first round. So it was a lot of, of me just trying not to, to, to look as scared as I felt, um, try not to react to the pain as much as I felt it. And um, a lot of just inner inner talk so that I could complete the fight, and finish that fight. But it was difficult. I wanted to quit after round one. And my coaches in my corner, you know, they kept me strong so that I kept going. But that girl Lisa Valencia, she was a warrior, and she pulled her, you know, her heart out. She had a heart of a lion, and um, we both got it. We got a standing ovation after that fight because it was an incredible battle. We got, a, yeah, and it was like one of the most amazing things I've ever felt. But um, yeah, there, pro fighting and it is no joke. Um, it's, it's incredibly dangerous. There's a reason why a lot of people don't do it, men or women. It was an honor. To step in the wing with Lisa and, and to to have that victory just in
0: terms of females in sport to give the audience the incredible show that we did. Great, so going into women's boxing a little bit more into depth, um, you started boxing in the 1990s, right? Yes. All right, so during that time, um, you did mention a couple times you booked that during the 1990s, um, women's boxing was just you know, starting to become big thing on the scene, you know, on uh, fighters such as Layla Ali. But at the time, there wasn't Olympic boxing for women. What was your thoughts about that during that time? How women boxing was perceived?
1: Correct. Yes. Well, uh, back then, the perception of us, um, it was not as favorable as, as it is now. Uh, back then, uh, we were considered a joke. We were called a freak show. Women in boxing were fetishized. Uh, we were not taken seriously at all. So we had to work very hard, uh, twice as hard as the men, to earn legitimacy as, as athletes, um, you know, for our physicality. So I do remember talking to my coach, Stan Ward, um, saying that I wanted, I had expressed my interest in competing in the Olympics. I just assumed women were allowed to box in the Olympics because the men are allowed to box. And, and that's when Stan told me that women were not allowed to box in the Olympics back then. So that was not made possible until 2012 when women were allowed to officially box the Olympic Games. That was only eight years ago. Mm. It wasn't that long ago. So I do believe that myself and all those incredible women, all my opponents and all the women who were boxing at the time, Leila Lee, uh, Christy Barton, um, that we paved the way for women to be able to box in the Olympics now. And, and, and the women's bo- women's boxing has really exploded. I mean, there's a lot of young girls, they're, they're training very seriously. There's women in boxing in the Olympics. Um, right now, what, what I would like to see is, is women need to be paid more money for their pro fights. There's still a huge disparity between what men make and what women make. Um, but it's getting better and we still have a bit of a way to go. But getting, it, getting our foot into the Olympic door is huge for women boxing.
0: If women's boxing for the Olympics was available during your time, would you would have kept fighting?
1: That's a great question. It, it's possible I would have gone on longer. Um, it is a great question. I don't know. Um, it would have been incredibly exciting to Olympics like And at some point in my life, I, I am going to pursue being a coach. Uh, for perhaps the boxing in the Olympic Games or some kind of cornerman or a cutman kind of role but um, I, I am still involved in boxing in that you know I'm the volunteer coach with the children and the teenagers at Kid Loves Boxing and I love it so I think the next uh, logical move in addition you know to writing my book uh, would be to continue supporting girls and women in the
0: sport on some level now let's go with devin to your book when did you decide that you wanted to write a book
1: I actually started that process in 2000, so it only took me 20 years to write my book. Um, but uh, when I retired from boxing in 2000, there was uh, interest from Hollywood uh, to make my story into movie. Because I was one of the few women doing it at the time, I got quite a bit of publicity. And uh, also being a journalist, I got a lot of press. So um, I was uh, connect- connected with the director, producer, at Paramount and we had some meetings and they had discussed turning my story into a film, but that meant that there needed to be a story written. And that's what really planted the seed in my head, but I had just retired from boxing and I was still trying to decipher what my journey in the sport was all about because it was so much deeper than just competing. Um, for me, it dug very deep into my childhood and, and all my dark places, all my insecurities, things that I have kept hidden From most of the people most of my life so I was reluctant to write my story because I didn't want people to know these very vulnerable things about myself but then I thought other people are vulnerable too and vulnerability is the one thing we all share the beautiful thing we all share that connects us all and I thought perhaps my vulnerability might help people out there so that's why I decided to do it but after my first draft when I read it and it was all done I, I didn't I didn't want anybody to read it. I, I was still very scared, but um, just through a lot of meditation and support, I decided um, to do it, and, and it's done very well. So I'm, I'm very pleased with the
0: feedback so far. So, um, you you just mentioned that you are offered a, a movie deal for Paramount for your book. Is that deal still on the table, or are you still trying to make your um, story into a movie by any chance, or? Or is it
1: Oh, late? okay. So the deal with Paramount in 2000, it, it didn't end up working out. I, I didn't, um, there was nothing written and, and these people were very supportive and wonderful. And in fact, that user director that reached out to me 20 years ago is still in my life. In fact, he wrote a testimonial that appears on the back of my book. Um, but now, um, I, I did sign a movie deal. My book came out on February 14th, on Valentine's Day. And on April 6th, I did sign a movie deal with a woman named Slavika Bogdanov of Empowering Entertainment. So a film that's now currently in development based on my book.
0: Is there any release date for that film coming? or, or is it Yeah, a lot of people
1: to- are asking. So she says it could come out as early as 2021. Yeah, so that's what she's targeting and it's very very exciting um Slavika is is a marvelous very very brilliant talented person and it's wonderful to be aligned with a female and empowering entertainment is all about bringing positive uplifting stories to the world so she's a perfect person to align with on this content
0: how will this movie be um, presented will it be a documentary will it be a, a tell-all story will you be like a narrator will you be starring in the movie Oh, those are all great questions. Um, so
1: we're, we're envisioning it as a feature film. And um, so whoever the lead actress is, so there will be a voiceover because there are excerpts of the book that are that are voiced over in the movie. Um, so whoever the lead actress is, she'll be doing the narration. Um, I would love to have a cameo in the film. So I'm going to ask Lovica if that's possible. I would love to play like a referee because. Uh, a female referee, Gwen Adir, who was the only female referee in boxing, the first the first ever female referee in boxing. I had the privilege of having her referee one of my fights. So I would actually love to play Gwen Adir, reffing, you know, whoever's playing me and her opponent. I think that would be super cool. I'd love to play a camera.
0: Well, definitely let me know when that movie comes out. I'll definitely watch it for sure. I'll definitely oh, thank it. you. Going back to your um, recent comment, you were talking about um, meditation. You were talking about mental health. Now, you did mention in the book that you decided to um, give up boxing because you had a lot of things going on mentally. So I wanted to know, where where was your head at after, you know, your boxing career? Were you happy, were you sad, or what were you going through? I was, I was
1: uh, very depressed after I quit boxing. Um, when I was boxing for the two years that I did compete, um, I felt amazing I felt I felt happy I felt positive and during that time I actually thought I had found a cure I thought boxing had cured all my insecurities all my my darkness all my depression and anxiety and, and all these feelings I had like you know from childhood and just growing up and you know growing up in, a, in an atmosphere of abuse and volatility and when I boxed I didn't feel those things they mean, they were there but they didn't hurt me as much as they did before so I thought I found a cure for all of of that pain but as soon as I quit the sport all that pain it all came back in full force and I remember being devastated because I thought I'm gonna have to face this all again but I thought this is something I need to face I need to decipher it I need to figure it out um, without violence and and I don't want to equate boxing with violence because boxing is a sport, but it's a very dangerous sport. So I thought, I've got to figure out a way to find inner peace without beating up somebody else, right? Without beating up another woman in the ring. I, I had to find it, you know, without fighting. Um, so that was a, a very difficult transition. It was very hard to live deep within myself, take a hard look at myself, you know? Um, you know, a lot of depression spells, a lot of, you know, a lot of crying, a lot of isolation just to figure it all out. Um, but I prayed a lot, I meditated a lot, you know, um, when I had needed a lifeline, I would call you know my parents or just anybody who I could talk to about it and i could go through. But that, t- that was a long and very, very difficult process. that took about a year to come through on the other side.
0: Well, it seems that you are in great and better spirits now. You're in the happy. you seem like you're in a very, what, very happy morality. So I'm glad to see that. But um, for the listeners that are listening, that are also, that could possibly be going through mental health problems of their own, what are any tips that you could give to them to you know, um, get them out of the um, hole that they're in right now?
1: Yeah. And thank you for that question. You know, I do want to say that I still experience down times. I still have those dark days. I call them the, the, the black hole of negativity. Um, it, it never goes away, okay? Um, but what has helped me and what I think can help others uh, dealing with the same kind of darkness is, to, you know, to embrace those dark parts of yourself. Those broken pieces or those, those pieces of you that you think are broken, they're not broken. Those those pieces, and I call them heartbreak pieces, are what make you who you are. And those are the most beautiful parts of who you are. And those are the parts that have made you strong. So once you can embrace the darkness, embrace the insecurity, learn to love the darkness, then that, that's a helpful thing because we really need to love ourselves. And that's something I realized I did not have was I had no self-help. And no matter how many people told me how great I was, no matter how many championships I won, if I didn't love myself, it didn't mean anything. So I had to work very hard at loving myself and that meant embracing the light and the dark.
0: That's a great message, actually. That's a really great message. Uh, that would be something that I could definitely take with myself as well, for sure sure I want to thank you for your time I want to thank you for um giving me the chance to interview you um it was a pleasure but before you go I want to ask a few more questions um my my next question is where are your future endeavors um for yourself um do you want to keep writing or do you have any well other than your movie do you have any other big projects um planning that you're planning right now yes I'm
1: currently um I'm immersed in writing my second book which is also nonfiction. It's called The Oath, and it is based on a true story of a woman named Flo Tripani, who was a, a female police officer in Simi Valley in the 1980s when, when hardly any women were joining law enforcement. Uh, Flo faced tremendous sexual harassment and discrimination, and her safety was threatened, and she ended up having to retire from um, a job she loved as a cop. But it's a story of female empowerment, just how she survived all that harassment, discrimination, and discrimination, and how she can be on the other side. So it's a story of a very strong woman, and I believe that her story's going to inspire many women out
0: Is there a release date for that book coming out anytime soon?
1: It's coming out in 2021. Um, it'll definitely come out by then. And there is already interest. Um, actually, Slavika Bogunov of Empowering Entertainment is interested in that as well. I think it would make a marvelous film. So, um, but I will keep my my readers and everybody posted. I am um, on Facebook. People can find me on Facebook um, at Alicia Doyle or on Instagram at Disaster Devo Boxer. All my updates about everything that's going on there, including my next book. People can tune in there, and they're welcome to to find me on I mean, those. I welcome okay. any kind of questions or feedback.
0: <laughs> but once again, I appreciate you for coming from um, giving me a chance to interview you. I really appreciate you. I thank you for um, sending me your book as well. It was a great read. I, once again, I just appreciate you for giving me the chance to interview you. Hi Reese. You.
1: thank you. It was an honor. I'm so glad we connected and thank you for the kind words about my book. And I know you're going to do great. I'm so happy to know that, that you're going to be a journalist. I think that's more we need more
0: like you well alrighty, guys thank you for um listening um this is the first installment aspire podcast and follow on instagram snapchat twitter linkedin and also um if you want to share this first episode of this podcast for anyone on all your social medias then i'll appreciate it thank you so much for listening